Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. To start by asking you a question, uh, which is simply this, what could the most powerful, most perfect, most upright, most kind, most compassionate, most thoroughly wise communicator, a person with incredible capacity to draw men and women from all kinds of backgrounds to himself into relationship, what could Jesus, who is perfectly God and perfectly human, the Son of God in one person with two natures, what could Jesus teach us about human sexuality that gives us clarity in the midst of confusion, hope in broken places, and is a starting point for witness to our world uh, that actually builds bridges, that allows the church to come to our neighbors with a message of hope and to do so in a way that is humble and not armed with condemnation or self-righteousness. That's my question this morning, uh, and my goal this morning is simple. If I uh, can do one thing this morning for at least some of us, uh, it is this, that to, to see that making Christ Jesus as the starting point for conversations about human sexuality is both deeply biblical and thoroughly hopeful, uh, to make Jesus the starting point. And that might seem obvious to you, uh, and it would be nice if it was obvious to you, but I think that oftentimes uh, our starting point in the conversation is different. And uh, I've been prompted by a friend uh, who has asked the same question, uh, which is, what would happen if we made Jesus our starting point in the conversation? More on that uh, in a moment. But we're studying Paul's first letter and Paul's goal to the Thessalonians. Paul's goal for the Thessalonians and for Christians everywhere across time and place is for healthy spiritual growth uh, to grow in holiness while we wait for King Jesus's return. This is the hope that he expresses uh, at the end of chapter three in a prayer where he prays this. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul wants us to increase and abound in love for one another within the community and for all the, the community going outward to the world and to be established as blameless in holiness before Jesus's return. And so he comes as alluded to, to the first area of concern, which is Christian sexual conduct. And if you were here last week, uh, just a refresher, and if you weren't here last week, just a catch up, that the Thessalonian Christians uh, were being brought to faith out of a culture 
of deep confusion about human sexuality. Just for example, and not exhaustively, uh, in first century Greek culture, pagan worship often included sexual promiscuity. And so you could imagine, you think of the, even the places in the New Testament where we read about you know, the cult of Diana, Artemis, of Ephesus, etc. Uh, and so you could imagine these young Christians coming to faith and wondering if this new religion that they're being converted in, into is similar or if it's different. And so that question needs to be taken up. Also in their culture, marriage uh, was more about identifying legitimate offspring than identifying a bounded monogamous one flesh commitment. Uh, it was understood and assumed uh, that at least husbands would have liberty with regard to sexual conduct as long as they didn't transgress someone else's marriage. It was just an operating assumption. And so this area of sexual conduct was an area where discipleship needed to happen. And Paul picks it up and he uh, teaches the Thessalonians in these verses several points, where, which we noted last week, and just in briefly, that God has a word on human sexuality that is authoritative. Uh, perhaps you noticed, uh, as Gene read, verse 2, uh, that Paul writes, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that God has a will for conduct on this. And uh, that he gets to the end of instruction in verse 8, and he says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In other words, Paul is not writing on his own behalf. This is not the Apostle Paul's personal opinion uh, about how uh, life ought to be lived, but Paul is speaking uh, with the authority of God behind him. Secondly, uh, we noted last week that because of the fallen human condition, which we all inherit from Adam and uh, in the original sin, every part of our lives, including our sexuality, is impacted by sin. So no one comes to the topic from a neutral place. We all need God to work redemptively as much in our sexuality as in every other area of our life. And we saw last week and, and looked at length that this creates a from-to dynamic for Christian living, uh, that God brings us from guilt to forgiveness, from shame to acceptance, from brokenness to wholeness. And this is the repeated lesson uh, throughout Scripture. And if we just had one verse uh, to prove it, we could do not better than choosing 1 Corinthians 6, uh, where Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice hom homosexuality, etc., et to verse 11. And such were some of you, this great redemptive gospel note. Uh, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. From to. This is a, a massive, wonderful, powerful, liberating gospel verse. And then thirdly, Paul says that he wants Christians to grow in love for each other and for the world. And so he teaches against 
cultural conventions then, and I also think now, uh, that sexual conduct is not simply a matter of consent between parties, but has public impact. And he describes this in verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. All of this in more detail last week. So I want to connect two dots from 1 Thessalonians that bring Jesus to the fore of the conversation about human sexuality. First dot is in chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul says that when the gospel came to the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Dot one, imitation. Dot two, in verse two of chapter four, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So dot two, instruction, imitation, and instruction that there is an imitation of Jesus and there is an instruction by Jesus, which leads me to this question. On the verge of Advent and our annual celebration and rehearsal of the wonder of God, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, becoming incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, what could we learn from the Lord who chose to enter into human history with a biologically sexed existence. This is a starting point that may be new for some of us. So I want to be clear about where I'm starting, which is not to start with Jesus' teachings about sexuality, but to start even one step further back. To start one step further back which is that the Son of God came into history uh, you know, with a, a divine nature and a human nature, and that the human nature included a, a sexual component to it. That Jesus Christ, of, uh, you know, the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, also is a biologically sexed male individual. What could we learn if we started there? And from there, from that observation, we can then move to conclusions from his instruction. Do you, do you see the different starting point? So I, I don't want to start so much with what. I want to start with who. And I would suggest that starting with who doesn't change the, uh, the ultimate outcome of the what. We're still going to get to the same what, but, but the path by which we get there is instructive. Todd Wilson, who uh, is an acquaintance of mine, notes in his helpful book, Mere Sexuality, uh, this question, because uh, we don't think about the sexuality of Jesus, we have to figure out what it means to be biologically sexed without any light from the one who reveals what it is to be truly human. There is one person who lived a perfect, truly human life. What could we learn about sex from him? How would that change our understanding? So first, Christ's incarnation and human sexuality. Christ's incarnation affirms the basic binary sexuality of humanity established in creation. Brief reminder, 
that when we speak of Christ's incarnation, and so you can tuck this away for all of Advent, you can tuck this away for Christmas Eve, when we speak of Christ's incarnation, we affirm that Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, by being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance and born of her, yet without sin, end quote. A, a true body and a reasonable soul includes for the Lord Jesus a true male sexuality. One person, two distinct natures. And in his human nature, Christ possesses every aspect of male human nature, male physiology, male anatomy. Uh, Donald McLeod, the, the Scottish theologian, notes this. Uh, the same central nervous system, the same basic genetic code. And there is a point at which kind of our grasp of incarnation meets boundaries which require humility. But, but consider and even marvel uh, that in his incarnation, Christ derives from the substance of the virgin also means that, that she as a mother contributes to him all that a human mother contributes to her child, sin accepted. Through the umbilical cord, Christ Jesus is this particular man, the son of this particular woman, the bearer of the whole previous genetic history of her people, and the recipient of innumerable hereditary features, end quote. So, you could reasonably picture at whatever Joseph, the carpenter of Nazareth's house, was like. An evening where Joseph is looking at Mary while two-year-old Jesus is bopping around and saying something like, I see a lot of your dad in him. But we marvel because Jesus uh, also... Uh, must receive, and here I'm going to quote McLeod again, the one certainty is that Mary could not herself have contributed the sex-determining chromosome, Y, which is always provided by the biological father. This chromosome, at least, must have been provided miraculously, end quote. So the chromosome that determines the maleness of the second person of the Trinity at the Incarnation was miraculously provided by the God who created humanity with two biological genders, that God created humans to be male or female in our sexuality, and he sanctified this in his incarnation. I think that's the main point I'm trying to underline here, that he confirmed this design as good. He confirms you in your maleness or your femaleness biologically as good. And I understand uh, that current debates about gender identity focus on divorcing biological sexuality from gender. And there are all kinds of reasons about how we, we have culturally traveled to this moment. And we're experiencing the outcome of centuries of worldview development, which increasingly privilege the autonomy of the individual and the feelings of the individual at the expense of what genetics tell us. So for those of us who have to navigate this current moment and interact compassionately uh, with friends or loved ones struggling uh, with the, the divorce of biology from identity, Jesus' incarnation 
gives courage and compassion in this way. That the only, I'm going to read it here. That the only person in human history who could exercise individual autonomy in a sinless, completely God-honoring, God-glorifying way, and who had absolute sovereign power to exercise that autonomy in any way that he wanted to, and who could be absolutely certain that his feelings were neither conditioned by the imperfections of a human culture nor any other influence, chose for his biology to inform his gender, and consequently accepted the boundaries imposed on his person thereof. Which means that at the exact time that Jesus' saving mission required his maleness in order to be God's final prophet and to be the perfect priest and to be God's final king, Jesus' maleness was not used chauvinistically to privilege maleness over femaleness. I want you to catch this. That the incarnation also teaches us the massive dignity of femaleness. That the Son of God became eternally dependent on Mary's biology in order to grow to term, be born, and be nurtured after, after birth. And all of this he did out of great love to redeem humans from sin. So, so the Son of God comes into history and he sanctifies what God created as good in the garden, biological maleness, biological femaleness. He, he chose it and he accepted the limitations thereof. That's what we can learn from Christ in his incarnation. And you might be able to build out from there. I only have seven hours to preach this morning. <laughs> but here's the next thing. Not only does his incarnation inform our understanding of human sexuality, his resurrection informs our understanding of human sexuality. So really what I'm trying to do uh, is to create a, a plausibility structure <laughs> for us, uh, for, for the rightness and the goodness of God's design of binary human sexuality, the rightness and goodness of male and female as good and distinct from each other, and then the goodness of God's design for sexual intimacy within marriage. But first, the first thing that we learn from Christ's resurrection with regard to the topic is binary sexuality is forever. Christ's incarnation creates a permanent physicality. This is um, from our, our confession. The Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was, here's the important point, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever, end quote. That Christ Jesus' real resurrection from physical death to new physical life affirms the enduring binary human sexuality of new creation. 
In other words, Jesus' human sexuality was not simply a time-bound mission necessity. Become human, become male, save the church, revert away from human physicality. Not at all. The resurrection of the Son of God as a biologically sexed male means that the eternally enduring estate of humanity is to be biologically sexed. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have been fallen asleep. Or as the uh, Westminster divines put it, on the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. King Jesus retains his male human body today. That there is a a physical space in the cosmos where physical Jesus is in his resurrected, glorified, but yet male body, which indicates to us that Christians will be raised in the same manner with glorified physical bodies that we inhabit today, which will include our biological gender, which tells us in terms of goal that the goal of redemption is not escape from our physicality. That's an ancient heresy. It's called Gnosticism. Uh, it's, It's plagued humanity for millennia and uh, the essential teaching is that the soul is good, the body is bad, that, that the best that you can do is to figure out some way to escape from your body. But, but God is redeeming all of you. He is saving all of you. And his actual physical resurrection, his actual physical ascent into heaven, his actual physical rule today at the right hand of God the Father are such cardinal confessional commitments, are so plain on the face of Scripture and so essential to what it means to be a Christian that Christ's resurrection needs to always be in the fore of at least our minds when conversations about gender and sexuality come to play. Because because you can't celebrate Easter and have it a different way. So there's an indication in the resurrection, but there's also, secondly, vindication. That Jesus' resurrection vindicates his authority. It's interesting. uh, If you just flip over to Romans chapter 1. I hear those Bible pages rustling. It's very encouraging. In in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul writes that this is, you know, the, the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And within that verse is the Greek word spermatos which simply means uh, that he is writing of this physical lineage, that the, the real personness of 
Jesus concerning the Son who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by, the re- by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 4, which I want to be our focus, is, is teaching us that when Christ is raised from the dead, his, his resurrection is his, is his vindication. Uh, it proves that he accomplished what he intended to accomplish, that the Father accepted the sacrifice for which the Son came into the world. And, and you can read it backwards to say that, that everything then that Jesus said during his earthly ministry counts in an authoritative way, that, that he is validated in his teaching. Which means that now we get to, because we've uh, looked at the incarnation and we've looked at the resurrection, that, that when we come to Jesus' teaching on these matters, on, on gender, on marriage, on sexuality, on sexual conduct, when we come to Jesus' teaching on these things, we're coming to one who teaches with the authority of God directly. Directly is the Son of God. So Jesus affirms, for instance, God's creation of male and female's image bearers. He answered uh, in Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? God's original intent in creating humanity to bear his image requires maleness and femaleness. And in the next verse, Jesus affirms that marriage creates a comprehensive, complementary, one flesh union for which sexuality is designed and in which sexual relationship flourishes. Verse 5, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So we have the, the creation of humanity, and we have the institution of marriage, we have them combined together. We have them bounded. Jesus explains that this creates a new one flesh unity. Now, Todd, in his book on mere sexuality, asks a provocative question, which I, I will throw out to you and, and chew on it uh, because I think it's worth chewing on. He says, would cultural tensions about marriage go away if everyone could just agree on a definition of marriage? That's his question. Would tensions go away? His, his thesis is this, and you can see if you agree or disagree. I'm, you know, I'm, I want you to interact with this thought. Todd says, most Americans agree about what marriage is. It's just that our understanding of marriage is a serious misunderstanding in this way. We disagree about who can get married. But we often agree to define marriage the same way when we define marriage primarily in terms of companionship. When we define marriage as primarily about companionship and we divorce it from the rest of what marriage intends, then we actually share the dominant view of marriage that exists in popular culture. 
Now, I'm not saying that marriage should not include companionship, so don't hear what I'm not saying. But I'm saying that it includes more than companionship. And the reason I'm saying that is because Jesus says it includes more than companionship. That, that it includes a, a one flesh union, which can only happen because of the biological differences between male and female, which, which is companionship and more. Because when we make companionship the, the final definition of marriage, then what do we do when emotional intensity and power in a relationship doesn't last for a lifetime? And I think every person here who's been married for some period of time knows that that happens. That, that, that the intensity of the emotions waxes and wanes in the course of a marriage. And so if, if you've built your understanding uh, of marriage on only that emotional commitment, what do you do when that's not lasting? Well, you, you need a better definition a definition that includes this one flesh reality that is created when husband and wife come together in marriage in a bounded, covenanted relationship before God. So one application uh, that we need to own just for ourselves as a church is, is we need to re-own the more robust definition of marriage. We need to contend for the quality of marriages, yes, friendship, yes, companionship, but yes, also the one flesh dimensions of sexuality. And we need to contend against things such as easy divorce. We also need to contend for quality friendships outside of marriage within the church community so that persons whose call does not include marriage find companionship. And so that persons whose call includes marriage don't feel that all of the weight of companionship needs to rest on the marriage. Does that make sense? So, you know, when we think about what are things that we can practically do to live into this reality? One, keep investing in your marriage if you're married. Keep investing in it. And, and keep investing in friendships with others that, that can support uh, the need for friendship for people whose call is to not be married. Vindication. We okay so far? Two more points. We'll, we'll be done by three. <laughs> Third point. So we've had we've had it. The indication of the resurrection that that binary biologic sexuality is forever. We've had the vindication of Jesus' teaching on the topic by the resurrection. Thirdly, and hopefully to all of us as strugglers, we have imputation that Christ's resurrection means that the good news of his imputed righteousness applies as much to our sexuality as to any other area of life where sin impacts. You know, we talk about imputed righteousness as a Protestant Reformed church a lot. I just want you to connect the dot of imputed righteousness into the area of sexuality. That Jesus lived perfectly even in his sexuality. And Jesus' perfect life in his sexuality counts for all of our imperfections and failures uh, as surely as every other area of his perfect living counts for every other area of our failures. 
He who knew no sin died in our place as a perfect substitute for all of our failed living. And at the same time, God declares that all of Jesus's right living counts for us as if we had lived a perfectly right life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, verse we come to a lot. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's imputation in a nutshell. I, I don't know where the impact of sin in a fallen world touches you on this topic. I, I don't know. But let's just take a, a general category topic from the New Testament. Let's just take lust. And let's assume that some to many people struggle with lust. Jesus never struggled with it. He, he always was perfectly obedient. He, he never looked at a person and had a lustful thought, which means not only is he perfectly qualified to be our substitute, but that every time we would struggle with such a thought, his perfection in that area gives us hope in our repentance. And, and I would suggest to you that, that, that actually that is a more powerful hope for our repentance than simply, I'm just not going to try to do that again. Because, because every time you say to yourself, I'm just going to try to not do that again, you, you double down on your flesh instead of doubling down on Christ's achievement. And so, so I would suggest a different way to pray, which would be, Lord Jesus, uh, you never struggled with that. Your perfection covers me. I, I need your spirit to empower me to live in that way. I would suggest to you that that's how we mortify sin in that area. And then you can expand that out into the other relevant areas of your life. So this is what happens when a person is brought to faith in Christ. Justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. So that any person on this topic can come and find freedom from guilt, acceptance instead of shame, and, and live into a new reputation that has not been earned by you, but has been earned by Christ. That's good news. Imputation, fourthly and finally, imitation. So don't bury the lead, which you say, Dave, you've just done that. You've buried the lead. You've been on this for 30 minutes. And now you're saying don't bury the lead. But, but don't miss this point that Jesus Christ, the most completely whole person who has ever lived, lived an entire perfect full human life in celibacy. And his personhood was in no way diminished. That, that he was an entire whole person. That he lacked nothing. And his call, which included singleness, included celibacy. So th this is good news for us before we're married in our conduct. This is good news for us if we're called to not be married in our conduct. This is good news for us if we are called to be married and are put into a bound relationship. And this is good news for us in areas of temptation and distraction. Because in an area of temptation, uh, the... the 
the way to battle the temptation might be a life of celibacy and a life of faith and repentance might require an, a, a commitment to celibacy, in which case Jesus holds out for us a, a model and says that, that your life will not be less. You won't be less a whole person. You won't have less dignity. You won't have less worth. You won't have less value if, if this is your call in life. So for imitation, compassion, compassion in that as, as we are strugglers in this and as we carry the gospel to the rest of the world, that we come not in self-righteousness, but we come in compassion. And, and I mean, we just, however you are owning this, if you're a Christian, uh, you must say that if it took the perfect second person of the Trinity to die for your sins in this area, how could you not be compassionate to another struggler? How could you not be compassionate? Thirdly, resistance. Every Christian in every generation needs to resist the ancient heresy, which is updated, it seems, in every generation, that the physical body is bad and the related heresy that only souls are real and only souls matter. Physical bodies are good. God made physical bodies. Physical bodies are real. And when the current version wears out, you will get a restored version in the future. You will have a forever soul, but in the great return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, your forever soul will be connected to a forever resurrected body. And that body and soul person will live together uh, as an engendered person forever. So, so resist, these, resist the heresies. So Dave, that's nice. How would you resist these heresies? Well, I'm going to give you three sub, sub, sub applications. For those of you keeping score at home, this is main point two, sub point four, sub point three, sub point one. <laughs> so, hear me on this. For those of you who are going to go home this afternoon and go on your social media feed of choice and see perfected bodies that you will never be able to attain to. Or maybe it's not on social media. Maybe it'll be on the next movie that you watch. Celebrate as good the body that God has given you. The genetics which he has given you that inform the body that you have are good. Resist the heresy. Resist, secondly, privileging certain appearances over other appearances. And then thirdly, battle what objectifies physicality. When we objectify or sexualize physical appearance, think pornography, we reduce physicality to appearance and we divorce body from soul and we're playing into the hands of the heresy. Battle those things, resist those things. And if those things are difficult for you to resist and they may well be difficult to resist. That's why they're temptations. Find someone to fight them with you. Find someone who can preach the gospel to you. Find someone who can keep reminding you of the good news of imputation. Find someone 
who can who you can have community with on these things. I think when we start with Jesus and appreciate his sexuality, we, we, we start at a place where we have something hopeful to say both to ourselves and to the world that no one else will hear. And, and I encourage you to contemplate this, apply it, meditate on it, delight in it. And, and as you delight in it, what you'll actually do is you will actually see Jesus as all the more great. All the more, your vision of Jesus will expand. And as the glory of Christ becomes more glorious in our heart, we're more transformed. And that's a good thing. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.